Thank you for listening to Emmanuel Baptist Church's podcast. For more information about the church, please visit our website at www.emmanuelmanning.com. Thanks and enjoy the sermon. We're continuing this morning our series in the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be looking together at verses 9 through 11 of this Gospel. So I have them on the screen above, or you can have your Scripture open to follow along. So listen as I read. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Uh, One of the greatest uh, surprises I ever got was in December of 2001, Uh, It was my birthday, December the 2nd. If you need a second to write that down, you can. Uh, And I don't think it was my birthday day, but it was, I think it may have been my birthday. Uh, My wife doesn't even know what story I'm telling at this point. My wife uh, took me out for my birthday surprise. Uh, And what I didn't know is, unbeknownst to me, she had gotten tickets for the U2 Elevation Tour. Thank you. Yes. You uh, two, one of my favorite groups, uh, Sunday Bloody Sunday, uh, the War Album, Joshua Tree. I'm speaking past most of you at this point. Uh, one of the greatest concerts I ever went to, Bono with his Irish tenor. Come on. Uh, it was great. And it was so out of nowhere that I was like flabbergasted uh, with joy. I, I love being surprised. Unfortunately, in our home, I make the money and my wife deals with the money so I can never surprise her uh, quite that well. But she is an amazing gift giver and amazing surpriser. And I just remember thinking when, when she handed me that ticket, because we were going downtown Tampa, she handed me that ticket and I looked at it. It took me just a second to realize what in the world was going on. And when I did, and I was just like aghast, man, I cannot believe you did this and you got this past me. I love to find out surprising things. I love to be not scared, one time, when Dr. Moore used to go here, he killed a snake in the churchyard, and, and like, I don't like snakes. And I don't care that you think I'm a wimp. I don't like snakes. And if you do something with me and a snake, I don't like you either. <laughs> like, it won't be funny. I won't laugh. I will not like you for a long time. So just beware. And so what Dr. Moore did when he killed that snake is he put it by my uh, front uh, driver door. And so I had to unlock the car and get in from the other side. You've all got your things. And if you hit me with a snake, I will find out what yours is. Uh, surprising, so I found out a surprising fact this week. Did you know that Saddam Hussein actually wrote a published romantic novel? I, I'm not joking. He wrote a romantic novel. It's called Zabiba and the King. Uh, and when I read that this week, that was shocking. Uh, well, this morning, I'm thinking about surprises and talking about shocks because as we look at Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, if you have eyes to see it, there's, 
some surprising things going on, especially if you had lived in Jesus' day in the time that Jesus lived. There were some surprises uh, that were in store for the people when Jesus really revealed himself and was attested to by the Father and the Spirit at his baptism. Now, we've uh, looked at baptism before, and we've looked at the Trinity quite a lot. Uh, but this morning, I want to look at something different from this passage, and that is just the surprising people that God uses and the surprising way that God works. Now, the reason that I, I want to do that is because I really want to continue to get you into the mindset of, of what was going on here. And I want you to be able to see a lot of the significances that you, you might miss. Mark, uh, as well as all of the Gospels, have so many Old Testament overtones and hit at so many things in so many ways that we can miss some of the real surprises that are there in the Scripture. Remember last week uh, what we said, uh, that when the people of Judah and Judea were coming out to be baptized by John, that a whole lot more than just a mere baptism was going on. If you knew the, the time in which they lived, baptism was something that Gentiles did to come into the church. And that John took them out to the wilderness, which is where Israel went through as she made her way to the promised land in the Old Testament, Exodus, or as they went to the River Jordan. So he picked a spot on the River Jordan in the wilderness. I think I have a picture of it here. Let me see. Yeah, that's it. It's underwhelming, isn't it? Um, but that's kind of the whole point this morning, that, that God uses the underwhelming to, to change the world. Uh, they, God took them out to the wilderness through John and baptized them into the Jordan. And like we said last week, if you're a good Old Testament reader, that would have been a shocking thing for Israelites uh, in the first century. Because in essence, John wasn't just saying, hey, come dip in this murky water. He was saying, you need to give up your identity as the people of Israel and you almost need to be re-Israelited. You need to go through the wilderness again. You need to be dunked. You need to go through that Jordan again uh, because you're so sinful that the Messiah is going to work in us only if we come and repent and give up the identity that we've built and, and find our identity in him. And some overtones like that we see in today's text because I want us to see first the surprising people that God uses. When you're reading your Bible, one of the things you have to remember is that uh, parchment or sheepskin, whatever they used, generally speaking, was pretty expensive to come by. And so every word in the Bible is an important word. It's never a bad thing to just read the Bible word for word and focus on every word and go, I wonder why that's there. Now, you can go a little hairy with it and, and see things that aren't there. Uh, but Mark was careful and had probably composed and and written this, you know, a couple of times just to get everything exactly as he wanted. And so I'm going to focus on some words this morning, and I just want you to know that there are overtones here that help us to see what Mark was doing and pointing back to the Old Testament. So for instance, if I say to you the three words, will not perish, where am I quoting from? John 3, you knew that. That's just a, a Bible phrase. And so when you hear certain Bible phrases, because you've heard them over and over and over again, your mind goes to certain places. Well, in the New Testament, when the authors were writing that, they, they used phrases from the Old Testament that brought all of those things back into play. And the history of the Old Testament and everything that's going on 
in this passage convinces us of a couple of truths. The first is that God uses surprising people. Now, why do I say this? Where do I get this from? Everybody so far that's been discussed in Mark 1 uh, has been a Judean. Look up at verse 5. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized him by him in the river Jordan. So Mark has set this up so that it's the Judeans that are coming out and being baptized in the river Jordan. And then all of a sudden, it says this in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from where? Nazareth of Galilee. Now, Jerusalem, we're going to do Israel here. Jerusalem's uh, southern. Jerusalem was where David had his throne. When the ten kingdoms separated uh, from the two in the south and Judah remained faithful longer than northern Israel, uh, these Jerusalemites, these Judeans, uh, had just grown over the years to think those people from up north are the backwater pagans, right? Our word heathen comes from the word heath, all right? Same as the word heather. So if you're a heather, you're a heathen. Uh, not really. But the heath was out away from the city, out in the country. That's where the pagans lived. And, and, and so they're the heathens, those out there in the heath. Well, the Judeans considered the people from up north just that way. Nazareth was never mentioned in the Old Testament, and Galilee was certainly not considered as being a great place to live. Because whenever idolatry came into Israel, it always came from the north. The, the northerners were always the one who went idolatrous first. Sounds familiar. But anyway, um, okay, sorry. And so it would be striking that when Mark is getting ready to reveal the Messiah, that is the king, the one through whom God was going to remake everything and make it good and new. We talked about in the first few verses of Mark how there's these overtones of beginning and new creation, that this one that God was going to use to bring about his new creation was someone from Nazareth in Galilee. Remember when Philip first heard that Jesus came from Nazareth? Does anybody remember the question he asked? Can, can anything good come out of there? There's some debate whether or not, um, and I'll just give this as a reference for you adults. Uh, Nazareth had sort of a, an amsterdam sort of reputation. Can I say that? Okay. Um, and so Mark just stops it. And he says, in those days, when all these Judeans were being baptized, there comes Jesus. And this would have been a 10-day to a 14-day walk for Jesus to get there. Uh, and he steps out, and it says, Jesus of Nazareth came to be baptized by John in the Jordan. One show my wife and I used to watch quite a lot was, um, man, the title just left me, Parks and Recreation. Anybody here ever seen Parks and Recreation? Yeah, so you, uh, you have Leslie Nope, who, is, who runs the parks department in a small town called, nerd alert, Pawnee, yeah. And uh, there's this running theme that goes through the show where you have the people from Pawnee versus the people of Eagleton. And in Eagleton, whenever you go to the town meetings in Eagleton, uh, that you get a free iPod with your like, uh, package for coming to the town meeting. 
And they had the wonderful, you know, parks and all the rich people. And then you had poor Pawnee, which is where the people of Eagleton just kind of threw their trash over the fence. That's sort of the idea that I want you to get here. That the idea that Jesus would have been from Nazareth is more shocking than you would have realized. But this hits on a point that we need to know. That just like our Messiah was a surprising person, God uses surprising people. Thinking this week through the Old Testament, I remember Moses. When we think of Moses, we think of a great leader. When Moses thought of Moses, Moses thought of a loser. Right? So when the Lord said to him, Moses, I'm going to take you uh, back to Egypt where you killed a guy 40 years ago, uh, and I'm going to make of you a, a leader, and you're going to lead my people out of Egypt. God spoke to him through a burning bush. And we would think, well, if the Lord spoke to me through a bush that burned but was not consumed, I'd probably just believe him. Probably not. Moses objected to God five times. Who am I to go, he says in Exodus 3.11. In other words, I'm a nobody. Who are you that is sending me? Who am I? Who are you, God? Uh, the people won't believe me, he says in Exodus 4.1. In Exodus 4.10, he says, I don't have the skill. Moses maybe had a speech impediment. Maybe he stuttered. He said, Lord, I, I don't have the, the ability to do that. Maybe that's not the case, but he felt a complete lack of confidence about his ability to speak in court. Uh, and the Lord said, well, I made man's mouth, and all right, I'll give you your brother Aaron. And then finally Moses just gets to the point, he says, will you send somebody other than me? But one of the things we have to remember, not only in the case of our Messiah, but also in the case of ourselves, that God uses surprising people. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament, having a lot of credentials and a lot of things to your name is actually a bad sign. So one of the richest people in the Old Testament was Solomon, one of the wisest. I heard somebody write this this week. Uh, Solomon was Da Vinci, Einstein, Bach, Jordan, Augustus, and Shakespeare rolled into one man. Now that's, that's a Messiah, that's a king. But how did it end for Solomon? Not great. He had his heart called after other things. The reason that God uses surprising people is because God uses people who need him and he uses people who are dependent upon him so that in all things he gets the glory. And just like Jesus was, and of course, I'm not saying we're Jesus. I'm not saying we're doing messianic work. He is Savior. He is King. He is Lord alone. But there's a principle in his calling that is true of ours as well because Paul says in uh, the Corinthian letters, God doesn't choose the noble, he doesn't choose the wise, he doesn't choose the strong, he doesn't choose the mighty. As a matter of fact, he chooses the weak to shame the strong. And that's exactly what he was doing in our Lord Jesus Christ. He was calling someone from the backwater, his own son, and announcing him to be the king, the savior. God was announcing that he was the one through whom he was going to make the new heavens and the new earth. New creation starting in Jesus. And what we always have a tendency to do, if you see Christian music movies, is we always have a tendency to sort of make Jesus a chiseled Swedish guy rather than what he was, which is somebody we would want checked in the airport line in front of us if we were getting on a plane with him. Jesus wouldn't look like you think he would look you would probably be disappointed when they characterized him in the New Testament. They basically characterized him as someone who was a wine-bibber, a glutton, and someone who hung out with sinners. 
we would be disappointed with Jesus. That's exactly who God used to save us. In the same way, God uses surprising people who may not look like the right fit, but who just depend upon him. I have found this to be the case in my nearly 11 years of being here, that the sexy option almost always lets you down. You know what I mean? But people who are just salt of the earth, good people who show up and do the work are the kinds of people upon whom you can build a ministry. Even people who do great things have great struggles. I was reading this morning about Charles Spurgeon. You know I quote Spurgeon all the time. By the way, if you come to Emmanuel Baptist Church, you need to read Charles Spurgeon and John Piper. Just a heads up. All right, part of the way in. Spurgeon is considered by many to be one of the greatest preachers since the days of the apostles. He preached over 600 times by the time he was 20. His sermons sold about 20,000 copies a week worldwide. Every week, about 20,000 copies of his sermons were sold, even in the United States. They would send over, cable over his sermons. They were published in the U.S. His collected sermons fill 63 volumes, larger than the Encyclopedia Britannica. What he preached comprises one of the largest sets of books by a single author in the history of Christianity. In a time around 1850, 1860, when there were no microphones and certainly megachurches weren't all their age, Charles Spurgeon preached to 5,000 people a week. It was the first megachurch, really, in so, so many ways. And he had such a voice that 5,000 people could hear him. At his 50th birthday, there was a list of 66 organizations that he founded and conducted, including a pastor's college, three orphanages, and all kinds of things. This was a man who had the kind of output that just makes us all jealous. Lord Shaftesbury uh, was there when the organizations that Spurgeon founded were read, and he says, this is a list of associations instituted by his genius and superintended by his care, and they were more than enough to occupy the minds and hearts of 50 ordinary men. And you think, goodness gracious, Charles Spurgeon must have had everything together. When he was 22, he was preaching to a large group in Crystal Palace in South London. And somebody decided to be a prankster and yell, fire. There were 15,000, 20,000 people there. In the stampede that uh, ensued, seven people were killed and about 27 people were injured. And as a result of that happening, Spurgeon had seasons of depression that nearly drove him crazy for the rest of his life. He had a burning kidney inflammation called Bright's disease. He had gout. Can I get a witness? Um, he had rheumatism and neuritis. When he went into his seasons of depression, his wife would say things like, my beloved's anguish was so deep and violent that reason seemed to totter in her chair. And sometimes we feared he would never preach again. Added to that, he had many, many critics because he was also a backwater guy who didn't speak in the Queen's English. He was kind of a yokel himself. The pain, one writer says, the politics, the opposition, the overwork all affected him deeply, if in waves. So much so that today he would almost certainly be diagnosed as clinically depressed and treated with medication and therapy. Sometimes Spurgeon says that as he preached, he could hear the chains of his depression rattle. You guys know that's not far from what many of us experience. 
I have OCD, and it's not the kind of OCD that makes me make everything clean. I don't overwash my hands, and you can go look at my office and know that I have no problems with uh, being too organized. But I have it in this sense that I will overdiagnose and review things that happened five, seven, ten years ago and just go into a panic over something that I don't even need to worry about. And sometimes I don't even know how I'm going to do this. But God's word needs to be proclaimed. And in spite of how I feel, and in spite of what I suffer from, and in spite of what you suffer from, it's his word that contains the power. And if weak people will stand, and if weak people will just get in there and do what he calls them to do, God will do amazing things. God uses surprising people. And so the first way to apply this is you may know that there's something that God is calling you to do that you feel completely inadequate for. And of course this idea is preached a thousand times in churches because it never seems to make it quite through, but this is the truth. God uses screw-ups, and he uses broken people, and he uses people who don't think they're adequate. And all of this is signaled in the fact that when Jesus from Nazareth stepped forward to be baptized, I'm sure that everybody looking at that would have known where he's from. He had that kind of Galilean accent. And they'd have said, who is this? And why is he here? God uses surprising people. He uses little places like this that looks like a dumpy river uh, to change the world. And it's in places like this that he speaks. Because not only does God use surprising people, God uh, works in surprising ways. What do we mean by this? The first surprising thing you should notice in this text about the way God works is when Jesus was baptized. Look at verse 10. And immediately, when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The first surprising thing in this verse is the Greek word for torn. Mark doesn't use the word that the other gospel writers use. They use the word anoigo, which means to open. Mark uses the word schizo, schism. You know that word schism, rip? That's the idea here, that when Jesus came up out of the water, God announced that he was getting ready to work in a surprising way because it says the heavens schizoed, they ripped. They were torn open. What does that mean? That means that now, through this small man who never traveled more than a 60-mile perimeter in his life, I've driven more in a day than Jesus walked his entire life, that through this man, God is now going to rip the heavens open and he's going to pour out his spirit among all mankind. When God rips the heavens open, we learn that the surprising way that God works is this, is that it is God and it is God alone who saves. I've told you this story before. You go throughout the pagan world, you go throughout the becoming pagan south, and it seems to be an impulse of mankind that if we're going to get to heaven, it's going to be on the basis of our efforts and on the basis of what it is we do. I had a friend, 
His dad was a Bible translator for Wycliffe trans, Bible translators, and he worked in South America among this people called the Chami. I've told you this story before. Once a year, they had this ceremony where they had to drag their idol around, and the way they did it was tying ropes to this idol and then putting hooks on the end of the rope and putting those hooks into their skin. And so using those hooks, they drug their statue around as a way to appease him so that when they died, they could go to be blessed and in life they could be blessed. And we may look at that and cringe, but our consciences have little Chinese running around in them all the time, don't they? And we think that salvation is up to us and our effort. The word religion comes from a Latin word, ligare, which means like a ligament, to retie. And we think that if we're going to be retied to God, that all the effort has to happen on our end. We've got to get the ligament up to heaven and retie it from our side. And the surprising way that God works is this, is that he and he alone is Savior, and he and he alone is the one who saves. That actually, that word for torn is the same word used in Mark 15 when the curtain tears uh, in the temple. And we hear that it tears from top to bottom. In other words... For some of you in here this morning who don't know the Lord and don't know Jesus, here's the good news, that the way to heaven is made by God and it's not made by you. Heaven was torn open. And we see this spirit descending down. It says the spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, I don't know that that means the spirit was in the shape of a dove, according to Mark, perhaps, but it, it means that the Spirit kind of came down in a way that fluttered. Now, why in the world, when we think of the Spirit, we think of a dove. But I can promise you this, those people in that day wouldn't have. But there would have been some little resonance from the Old Testament that made them think, oh, interesting. And that resonance would be from Genesis 1, where it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And the earth was uh, formless and void. And it says, and the Spirit of God hovered above the face of the waters. In Genesis 1, 1 and 2, in Hebrew, it's the word fluttered. And so when it says here that the Spirit came down like a dove, this is another one of these resonances that we see in Mark of new creation, where God is going to rip the heavens open through Jesus and through the Spirit on Jesus. He's going to remake everything and make it alive and make it new when Joshua crossed the Jordan the Jordan split Elijah and Elisha each parted the Jordan as a symbol of their power there was actually a, a an insurrectionist near this time named uh, Thutis not Judas but Thutis uh, who promised to split the Jordan as well <clears throat> but when Jesus comes on the scene, it's not the Jordan that is parted, it's heaven that's parted. And God is saying, through this one, this one you might not expect, I'm going to remake all things. And then another surprising thing is what God says. Not only what he does, indicating that it's him and him alone through Jesus that's going to open the way to heaven and remake things. God also tells us something about Jesus that's surprising. Look at verse 11. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Again, each of these are phrases from the Old Testament would have picked your ears up. When it says, you are my son, 
That would come from the psalm we looked at on Wednesday night. Anybody remember what psalm we looked at on Wednesday night? Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, it's a coronation psalm where a king is put on a throne. And the Lord says to the son of David, uh, You are my son, today I have begotten you. To be God's son was to be declared king. And so the people listening, when they heard, You are my beloved son, they may have thought, All right. We got somebody who can smash the nations with a, a rod of iron. This guy's going to overrun these Romans. Uh, he's going to set us up to victory. You are my son, but God continued. In the Greek, it is, you are my son, my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. And it's those next two that show the surprising way in which God works. Because when it says, you are my son, Psalm 2, when it says, beloved, that would be a link to Genesis 22. And that's the story of Abraham and Isaac, where Abraham and Isaac go up to the mountain and God looks at Isaac and he says, I want you to take your son, your only son, your beloved, and I want you to slaughter him. And so you would have heard, you are my son. They would have said, yes. He would have said, my beloved. Wait, what? Right? And then it continues with you, I am well pleased. And that harkens back to Isaiah 42 that we read today. In Isaiah 42 through Isaiah 53, there's a description of someone called the servant of God. And what we learn about the servant of God is that he will be Israel in himself. And he is going to be the one through whom God remakes things. And the way that he's going to do it is through Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. He's going to take up the mantle of the servant and then he's going to be beaten and bruised and slaughtered for the sins of the people. So the surprising way that God works is, yes, he does send a king, but he sends a king who operates in a different way. Jesus was anointed and declared to be God's son in power by virtue of his resurrection, and we await the day when Jesus is going to come back with a rod of iron and smash his enemies. But in the meantime, he came as the beloved, the one with whom God is well pleased, that is, he came first to do away with the sins of the people before he comes to reign in power. You see, if Jesus had just come as the Psalm 2 king to destroy all the sinners, who would he have destroyed? Just about everybody, including the people who thought that they were with him. But the fact that he came first as the king who would take up the mantle of the beloved son who would be slaughtered, whereas Isaac was released, where he takes up the mantle of Israel to be the servant who will be the light of the nations, but he will carry that light by extinguishing darkness in his death. <clears throat> All of that would have been immensely surprising to the people at that time. Jesus is indeed our king, <clears throat> but he is not a king, <clears throat> excuse me, like we expect. He is the servant king. And Psalm 2 and Genesis 22 and Isaiah 42 being slammed together in the way that the Father talks about the Son here should alert us that Jesus is going to be a different kind of king than we expect. And that is, he's the kind of king that will take up the sins of his people and die for them so that on Sunday morning we could be so presumptuous as to sing things like, I am free, I am released, I am made new. How dare we speak those words? The reason we can speak those words is because our Savior 
was killed on the criminal's cross. And he is a king, but the way into his kingdom is through his death and through dying to yourself. So let's apply this in close. First thing we need to know this morning is that Jesus is a different kind of king and God is a different kind of God. God is not the kind of God who can be impressed by your efforts to impress him. He's not impressed by your piety because the scripture says that all of our righteous acts are as filthy rags before him. We don't need for him to be impressed by us. It's impossible. We need for him to have a desire to save us. And he's demonstrated that in the servant king, Jesus, the one who will reign over the nations, but the one who starts his reign by being declared king of kings, king of the Jews on a cross. And he was put there for our sins so that he could bear our sins so that we could be free and enter into and spread his kingdom and prepare the way for him to come back as king of all the earth. The second thing we need to know this morning is that God works through surprising people. He works through broken, messed up, sick people. And as we depend upon him and as we step out in faith to the things that he calls us to do, he will work abundantly beyond all we could ever ask or imagine. And so there may be some reason you're not involved in a ministry, but your inadequacy is not disqualifying. It is the one qualifying thing. And so God works through surprising people. Uh, so by faith in him, throw yourself out there and remain humble and see what he will do through you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you, Lord, for your grace. We thank you that you have torn heaven open and sent your spirit down upon Jesus so that through him and the power of the spirit, the world can be made new. Lord, help us to live in the power of that message and not in the power of ourselves. We are indeed needy, Father, but you work through those who humbly rely upon you. Help us to do that, we pray. Father, I pray this morning for anyone who might be in here who does not know your son. I pray that you would give them the grace to repent of their own identity, of their sins and of their past, and to turn to Jesus and Jesus alone as the sacrifice that can bear them to heaven and into the new heavens and new earth. And Father, we ask all this in his name. Amen. Well, let's stand together and sing our closing song.